You're listening to the Moms Unscripted Podcast. I would love for you to stand next to me, but you cannot lick my arm. So, you are an overachiever in your sex life. I mean, life. I could teach a class on it. Well, and really, I just deflect. If there's man topics, I'm like, yeah, that's not what we do here. Have you ever met someone who has a way of talking about things that dismantles the systems that have always felt a little off to you, but you weren't quite sure why? So a few years ago, I was following a woman named Jennifer Naraki on Instagram. And at the time, Jennifer was navigating some health challenges and as a result had started going braless. And there were a lot of people on social media who had big opinions about it. And after seeing all this feedback that she was getting, I was super intrigued by the response that she wrote. She shared a lengthy explanation where she explains that her doctor suggested it as a way to let her lymphatic system drain properly. But then she goes on to share about how living braless has opened her eyes to new ways of thinking. And so here's what she says, and I'm quoting directly from her post. Society has a lot to say about breasts. Like a good girl, I followed society standards. I wore the appropriate bras at the appropriate times according to the current bra trends and the unwritten rules governing our breasts. If your breasts don't live up to the current trend, then there's a bra to fix it. We're taught that ridiculous notion at a young age, and it makes us self-conscious and binds us to certain standards. It even shames us. Have you ever researched bra history? I encourage you to take a few moments to do so, especially if you're raising young ladies. Bras are a business and we've stopped questioning it. Have you ever really thought about the fact that all of us have different shaped breasts, but that we're all made to look the same when we place these rounded uplifting cups on? Or if you're around in the 50s, the pointed cups. Have you ever thought about the fact that when we wear bras, our natural breasts are altered, which feeds the notion that our natural selves aren't good enough? Pushed up, padded, pushed together, flattened. There's current scientific research that shows that wearing bras has no physical benefit and actually can be harmful to the body because wearing a bra restricts blood flow and lymph drainage. Research also shows that wearing bras does not support breasts, but rather prohibits the body's natural muscles from working properly, actually causing breasts to sag. What do we do when we get home from a day out? We take off our bras. Why? Because they're uncomfortable. We wear these uncomfortable binding fabrics because we've been told to do so. But why? Modesty. Modesty, you say. Bras make nipples invisible. Why do our nipples need to be invisible? They certainly aren't when we are at the beach and there are plenty of bras that nipples show through. Again, for women who have large nipples, it's almost impossible to keep them entirely unseen. And if that's the unwritten rule, how completely shaming it is to put a ridiculous restriction on our natural bodies. Surely we need to be clothed, but the whole concept that we need to feel uncomfortable and even ashamed if we're perky is wrong. Movement. Our breasts move when we are braless. That's not immodest. It's actually how God created our bodies for a purpose because movement works together with muscle, which works together with blood flow and lymph drainage. Did you know that breastfeeding women who suffer from mastitis need to go braless? As do women with certain health issues. How about a woman who just feels free to abstain from society's rules? And yet braless women are judged so hardcore, especially by conservative Christians. I know because I was one of them until I was put in this position and then deeply considered the matter at hand and did some research. Isn't that such a fascinating perspective? I'm not sure I'm ready to go braless just yet, but I really love women who challenge the status quo and give the rest of us something to think about, especially on social media where it can feel unsafe to explore new ideas.
Another woman who is brilliant at dismantling broken systems in order to give us the opportunity to think differently is our guest today, Dr. Hillary McBride. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So we wanted to close out this month with a discussion on the connection between social media and mental health. Whether you've watched documentaries like The Social Dilemma or you've just realized that social media brings some unique strain to our lives, this conversation is for you. All right, so our guest today is Dr. Hillary McBride. She is the host of the CBC podcast, Other People's Problems. Her years of clinical practice as a counselor and researcher um, informs her expertise on a number of topics, including the intersection of spirituality and mental health, trauma and trauma therapies, body image, eating disorders, and sex and sexuality. Her first book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image was published in 2017. And her next book, which we're all looking forward to reading, The Wisdom of Your Body will be out in October of 21. We're just thrilled, cannot wait for it. She's been recognized by the American Psychological Association and the Canadian Psychological Association for her research addressing our relationships with our bodies across our lifespan. Hillary, we are just so thrilled to get to talk with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So we are talking about social media and mental health, which is a huge topic, I feel like, for all of us right now. So we're curious, what trends are you seeing in your practice around the connection between social media and mental health? Well, there's a few things as we're kind of in pandemic life. And I know it's in the situation in the U.S. is a little different than it is here in Canada. We're still experiencing big, big spikes in numbers and waves. So the, the context is a little bit different. But, but in pandemic life, one of the things that knit people together was social media. It was a chance to feel like there was some semblance of connection when we weren't seeing each other in the same way. And so I saw mental health um, be resourced by social media in a way that I hadn't before. But with that comes a bunch of other things like screen fatigue and changes in attention span and the comparison, the social comparison and the sense of isolation or loneliness that comes when we, we have access to people, but not in the same capacity that we did before. So changes in social media use can be connective, but they can also be creating kind of ruminative experiences where people are c comparing themselves or feeling worse than, or um, just noticing that so much time on the screen instead of in person is leaving them feeling more fatigued at the end of the day. For myself, when my practice moved entirely on Zoom, essentially, to, you know, out of being in person, I noticed at the end of the day, I did not want to be on my phone. I didn't want to have a FaceTime call with my family. So even though I wasn't seeing them, I didn't want to be connecting with people through the screen because it felt like I was at work again. And so I actually felt myself disconnecting a little bit more. And that is a hard way to to have meaning in life. It's a, it's a hard way to sustain the sense of interconnectedness that actually allows us to be healthy and thriving. And I think that was an experience that many people had. So this is pandemic specific, but if I zoom out a little bit more when I might say probably isn't so strange or unfamiliar to you that as social media rates grow up, go up, we're seeing depression, anxiety, attention issues go up across the lifespan. So including in younger generations where we're seeing things like suicidality, body image, social comparison, social anxiety, rates of those 
particular clinical presentations increase dramatically. And the hypothesis is that that's because of exposure at an earlier age to social media and not just social media, but what happens on it, which is how am I like that person? How am I different from that person? And am I valuable or lovable? And and am I meeting the markers that my peer group is expecting of me in order for me to be desirable, essentially? So it's uh, it's not it's not great. <laughs> I mean, social media is a it's a really important tool for us. It's how we navigate through employment landscapes, uh, relational landscapes. Now, I mean, I have a book coming out, as I know you do, Liana. And what would we do without social media? How would we spread the word? It's like a it's a kind of currency in a way. And yet, we have to be honest about the impact it's having on us and think think really strategically about how we want to use it and gatekeep for ourselves so that we can mitigate some of the negative impacts that it can have on us too. Okay. I think that's really interesting to talk about gatekeeping because I find in my own social media use is like a pendulum. It's like all, or I'm like out, none of it whatsoever. And Mm -hmm. I find that that's true with my kids, even like trying to find a really, um, easy way to self-regulate because it's hard, right? We're bored sitting, waiting for an airplane and I pick up my phone. It's like a default. And so do you have any tools or tips or tricks for us as we're trying to self-regulate our own behavior around social media? And what's a healthy way to, to navigate that? Well, there are outside resources that we can use, things like apps um, or, you know, there are timers on your phones that you can get installed that tell you, okay, this is how much time you've been using these apps or these, you know, these programs. So those external monitoring devices can sometimes be helpful for us because one of the things about self-regulation is that as the name implies, it comes intrinsically. You have to do it from within yourself. And so much of our social media use is unconscious, as in we're just kind of habitually reaching for the phone and clicking to open our apps and not really thinking consciously about it. So any of the ways that we can become more conscious, either through an, you know, a resource outside of ourselves or within ourselves, that seems to be a really mediating factor in our ability to change our relationship to it. So one of the things that I recommend for people often is... Uh, turn down the gray scale on your phone or turn down the color scale to make it gray. It tends to be like a little bit of a hack to make your phone less appealing because it's less visually stimulating. And so you get a little bit less of a dopamine reward when you're seeing something and it's all gray scale. So that can help. Um, Changing the hours of the day that you use social media. So deciding you're not going to pick your phone up first thing in the morning, you're going to do a bunch of things. And then after eight o'clock or 10 o'clock or whatever in the morning or same thing at night. I'm not going to, you know, making a commitment to yourself. I'm not going to use social media or pick up my phone after this period of time. You know, if you go to bed at 11, deciding not to pick up your phone or use social media after 10. And one of the ways that we can get around that for people is actually just go to old school alarm clocks, have an alarm clock in your bedroom. So you don't feel like you need to have your phone next to you that, that you know that you'll wake up. And then I think more specifically, if we're not just trying to interrupt those behaviors, but actually replace them with something that could be more generative and life-giving for us, one of the things that you might try to do is say say something like, um, take three deep breaths before you pick up your phone, or think about three things you're grateful for, 
or inter some way of interrupting that unconscious behavior by adding in something that could be really restorative and is actually a an important and evidence-based mental health practice. It seems that when we're doing that, not only are we interrupting the automaticity of our use of social media, but we're actually scaffolding better mental health, which mm-hmm. in a way could kind of inoculate us against some of the detrimental effects of the unconscious and mindless scrolling. Mm. So good. That's really good. We're, you're forcing yourself to add in healthy practices before yeah. you before you just sort of go into autopilot. I I have a question here, and it goes back to something you were talking about in a minute ago, and and you didn't use this phrase, but it feels like this often for me, which is a catch twenty two. A lot of the work that at this at this point in my life and in the world that needs to happen in my particular vocation. It needs to happen on social media. And yet sometimes that makes me feel um, powerless or like um, I don't really have a choice in that. And yet I know sometimes it's not a healthy environment for me. So what about those of us that feel like we're in a catch-22 where it's like, well, I really do need to be participating and I really do enjoy my community on social media. But then there's times that trails off into behavior or habits that... um, yeah, just aren't generative for me. And so how do we handle that catch-22? Absolutely. Well, especially if our social media use is related to our jobs, think about how we treat our jobs any other way. We have boundaries. We come in at a certain time and we end at a certain time. We have breaks. We allow ourselves to stop. We know that we're not going to answer that work email at midnight when we're in bed because we're supposed to be resting at that time. So what we might think about being able to do is use um, use a framework that we would use that's well-developed in some other sphere of our life, like thinking about a more traditional employment um, kind of environment and think about how we start at a certain time and we end at a certain time. And we think about it differently, right? If we something comes to us in the workspace, especially if we kind of have a healthy psychological framework for relating to work and we're not in a kind of overworking or workaholism paradigm, if something happens, we can go, oof, wow, well, okay, that's okay. I can leave it at work at the end of the day. And we can kind of walk away from it. And we treat the things that happen in our work environment differently than we do in our personal environment. So creating mental boundaries around that, as well as time boundaries or place boundaries can be helpful. And then I think about the difference for myself too, when I am engaging in social media and I feel like I'm on Um, and I use air quotes there, right? When I'm thinking about being in kind of my working space and I'm generating content that feels related to mental health or about connecting to my audience, that's going to be different than the kind of engaging in social media I'm going to do if I'm communicating with friends and family through maybe a more private network and I'm looking at photos of my friend's new baby or I'm thinking about a birthday party that they had and and the way that we can, any way that we can separate out some of the things that feel more personal from the things that feel more public allows us to have some more internal boundaries. And perhaps again, even using time boundaries where we say, I'm not going to post after this time for work-related things, um, but I'm happy to keep scrolling at, you know, within, a, within reason, but I'm going to do it with this mindset and mentality. And the purpose is going to be about connecting to people mm-hmm. in my life. I like the habit of it being um, time and place Mm -hmm. because I think, or at least I've tried to incorporate the habit and 
be more consistent with it when I'm with friends, when I'm with family, to not pull my phone out, to not right. scroll. And and in bed, um, my husband actually made a comment to me. Um, it was it was before 10. It was, you know, around nine o'clock when we get to bed and I grabbed my phone to check email for the next day. And and he was like, put your phone away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just that little like reprimand, I was like, oh, put, put my phone away. You know, he's like, you can't do right. anything about those things now. And so that's that's been helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we separate though? Because it's for me, it's not as easy if I'm do, doing a work scroll for me to just tip over to Instagram, you know, check out what's going on on Etsy. Um, really, it's just the intentionality of that hard line personally, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Holding holding boundaries for ourselves. Like sometimes we think about boundaries as being how we relate to other people or how much time or access they have to our inner worlds or what we share information wise. But I think about internal boundaries too, our ability to hold ourselves accountable to ourselves and the ability to speak kindly to ourselves if we violate one of our own internal boundaries or how we support ourselves to make behavioral changes that really violate our, our behavioral desires, our, our code of integrity. For me, a really important lesson has been, um, can I notice when I do something that I didn't want to do and still be gentle with myself Mm -hmm. and make the change that I want to? Mm -hmm. And social media is a great place to do that because we're so automatic in picking up our phones. Like you said, (laughs) Amanda, you're at the airport or... I'm not sure if that you, you said that, Leanna or Amanda, but I know one of you was mentioning, mm-hmm. yeah, at the airport, yeah. you just pick up your phone and you're just waiting and we, we don't really even think about what we're doing. But if we catch ourselves and we notice, this is one of the core principles of mindfulness practice, actually, mm-hmm. is when you notice that you're distracted or you're unconscious or your mind is wandering, you bring it back intentionally to the thing that's right in front of you. So as much as we think of social media use as being mindless, it can actually be an opportunity to be mindful and to practice some of the some of the cognitive skills, the attention skills that actually that are recruited when we're engaging in mindfulness or meditation, which is to notice that we're distracted and bring our attention back. Now, the reason that that is efficacious in building a compassionate inner dialogue is if we actually are kind to ourselves when we do that. So we go, oh my goodness, I'm I'm on my phone and I'm not even like consciously engaging. I'm just passing time and I'm not really here. Oh, that's kind of funny. Well, I'm glad that I noticed that and let's come back to my breath or maybe mm-hmm. I'll people watch for a moment or I'll pull out a book. And being kind to ourselves what? about a how book? we redirect. Our, oh, yeah, did you say what? A book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we joke, but that has been really important for me personally. Uh, I had a, a head injury in 2019 following a traumatic car accident, and I was put on limited screen time. And I noticed that because of the pandemic, all of the access to Zoom and the meetings and even kind of the, the visual way that we're meeting with people now it does something cognitively that's much more demanding than being in person together. Even when we think about meeting or FaceTime calls, when you hold the phone up to your face, the field of, of vision that you are recruiting or that you're ex- kind of excluding to be able to pay attention to that person's face is much more narrow than it would be if you were in person together. So it just demands much mm. more focused attention. And the expectation is if somebody's eyes are wandering that they're you know, they're not paying attention. Whereas if you're sitting in a park with a friend and you're looking at a tree, no one thinks you're distracted or you're being cold or aloof. Mm -hmm. So the way that we have conversations on social media is much more demanding for our attentional resources. 
And for me, the ability at the end of the day to pick up a, a hard copy book, a paper copy of something, to turn my phone off, all the notifications are off, the alarm is set, and I'm in bed or on the couch reading a paper book has been one of my you know, my saving graces mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, both with, he- with head injury recovery and the, pan- the pandemic, because there's something different about visually fixating your gaze on a page than it is you know, looking at another screen. So I'm really an advocate for printed books. I'll know that that, Mm -hmm. there are lots of people who say (laughs) that that creates more waste and whatnot, but we have to have places in our life where we are not accessing screens, where we are doing things that are non-screen related. I think that's fascinating. The physical strain of social media and your book, The Wisdom of Your Body. I've found even like in my own life last week, I was looking at something on social and it made my stomach hurt or Mm -hmm. I felt in my body jealous of like seeing other things. And so I'm curious, what are the physical strains and impacts on us that we might not even be aware of? Well, the two things that we're noticing in the research data that are probably most most pressing um, things that we need to pay attention to the most because we're, we're actually kind of unconscious to them typically are the way that we get fatigued by looking at screens. So the amount of data that we have to take in and the amount of information and energy that it takes for us to be staring at a small little box for a long period of time, it's actually very depleting energetically. It takes a lot from us in terms of our focus. And one of the things that most people don't know about focus or attentional resources is that they're finite. So if you spend all day focusing harder than you focused, and I mean visually, but I mean more than that, kind of attentionally, then you're actually going to have less in the bank for when you go home. So no wonder we're coming off Zoom calls and, you know, we're then we're you're freaking out at our kids or our partner, or we're finding ourselves less emotionally regulated than they were previously because our brain is working over time mm-hmm. to focus and to use all that energy to keep us present. The second thing that's really interesting in the research data is because of glitches in the way that messages are communicated and information is kind of moves on the internet, it seems that those little glitches or those delays in communication make us perceive other people as being more cold than they are. So we actually come off social media communication feeling more disconnected than the other person intends or than we intend because it's almost like there's this gap between when we say something and when someone says something and how, you know, the kind of our ability to attune to each other and make sense of the nonverbal communication actually leaves us feeling just a little bit more like raw or like that interaction didn't go as well. So people are finding themselves a little bit more socially anxious, a little bit more disconnected, even when if that same interaction would have taken place in person, they would have felt deeply attuned to and cared for and kind of there would have been lots of empathy moving back and forth between them. So those two things play a huge role in terms of our ability to feel present in our bodies, our ability to, um, yeah, even feel motivated and interested to connect online. Yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic, I took social media off my phone. Mm. Uh, It was just kind of a social experiment for myself. I had had many friends that had done it. And I felt that urge of I'm standing in line for something. Let me pull out my phone. And then when I pulled out my phone, I was like, there's actually nothing for me to do here. And then I would just put it back. (laughs) And it took several days for me to get out of that automation And there was a few things that I realized, one of which everyone else was on their phones 
And so, you know, Hillary, you'd mentioned like people watching, but then the other part of it is I got bored, but Mm -hmm. in that, in that boredom, I started to actually like, I don't know, problem solve. I started to get creative. I, and I think boredom typically is a negative term, but I felt this weird attraction to boredom during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. So Hillary, my question is, am I crazy? Or is there something to that? <laughs> you know what? Boredom is an extremely important phenomenon psychologically because it's usually the precursor to creativity, which is why we need to create experiences for kids where they're bored. Right? I don't know about for any of you, but I grew up having an afternoon where my mom was like, no, you like find something to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and how important that was for being generative and playing and imaginative play and the things that really stimulate the expansion of our minds and our interconnectedness to our environment around us. So boredom is not something that we have very often right now because of our access to these numbing strategies, right? The social media in particular, not to mention feeling overscheduled or like there's always something that has to happen. We're not getting access to the something that we need to actually live into our kind of most complete well-being. You know, Brene Brown has talked about un, unused creativity metastasizing and how important it is for creativity to be moving through us and accessed for us to be well and flourishing. So although there are moments where we can say, yeah, that, you know, my stomach dropped, like you were saying, Mandy, like, oh, I felt something inside of me seeing something on social media. Like there are those things that we can see immediately. Some of the long-term effects of the constant numbing out, we're not going to see till later, you know, till 20 years from now, we wake up and we think, wait, what did I miss in my life? Or what what's mm-hmm. happened to me existentially because I haven't been staying in a space of expansion and creativity and unknown because I'm stuffing every moment full of this kind of mindless content. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is very inspiring, isn't yes. it? And it's more than yes. mindless sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like some of these dynamics on social media are actually aggressive and traumatic and harmful. We wanted to talk with you about the, some of the sort of subcultures within social media that that we can experience micro trauma, microaggression and beyond like cancel culture or just even witnessing people getting involved in screaming matches on social media and wondering, would that even take place in real life if they Mm -hmm. were face-to-face and just witnessing people being horrible to each other Mm -hmm. or um, anyway, talk to us about Mm -hmm. some of these phenomenons that are um, aggressive that we're witnessing Mm -hmm. and trying to make sense of Mm -hmm. on social media. Yeah. No, I think the I think the complexity of social media is it allows us to inter- interact with people. But when we're interacting with people, it's in a way behind a veil. There is there is an impact that having a screen between us and another person has on our ability to perceive the other person's humanity and to speak to them in a way that we would if we were sitting across from them. It creates this barrier which can be objectifying. And that gives us a little bit more freedom at times than maybe we should have to say some of the things that we wouldn't actually say if we were standing face to face with a person. So when you get a number of people who are accessing that internal reality that there's kind of no impulse control and they want to say whatever they want to say and they're not considering the impact it has on the other person and everybody's operating that way, mm-hmm. it, it creates a, a kind of toxicity in this style of communication, which doesn't really allow for some of the fundamental things that we need in order to flourish as humanity, 
which is the ability to look the other person in the eye, to empathically understand the impact of our language, to think about long-term consequences for the things that we're doing or saying. For example, there are some things that people would say to a person on social media, and they might say something similar, but they might say it just a little bit differently if they were in that person, in relationship with that person long-term. So you can imagine if your neighbor does something that you don't like, you might walk over to them and say, hey, this isn't working for me, how this, you know, this behavior is happening with your dog or your kid or your car or whatever. But let's find a solution. Whereas on social media, if we don't have the expectation of long-term ongoing relationship, so it's really easy. The temptation is just to say whatever you want to say and to actually be much more critical and ruthless mm-hmm. because there aren't the long-term consequences of an ongoing relationship with a person. So I think that might be one of the precursors to a number of the phenomena that you're mentioning. Things like, um, yeah, just the, the screaming matches the divisive nature. And I think what I should say is what cancel culture has turned into because the history of the movement and, and that as a social strategy actually is really politically important in terms of black women finding their voice on the internet and being able to name and articulate some really problematic things that were going on. But when that specific phenomena was was taken over and it's it's become something different mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that one of these things underneath is this this precursor of how we relate to other people on the internet and how that's different than when we're in person. It's also just being kinder, right? It's it's interesting to me that on social media there isn't, you know, it kind of gives you, I'm just gonna say it just balls, right? You just say what you want to say. You don't there's the empathy is down because you think your balls are bigger to say something that's offensive. <laughs> I said balls twice, but <laughs> to say it to someone um, without caring if that's going to be offensive or not. And so you're right. I think that face-to-face conversation it does feel different. Um, also with social media, I feel like it is, it's this platform to pick whatever group or party you belong to and you just go ham (laughs) on that. But then it lessens just being open to wanting to hear the other person's opinion. There's it's, you know, when social media started and we would tell our kids, you know, just, you know, be careful, you know, you know, pick, pick and choose your battles, you know, the groups of folks that you hang out with, but it feels like um, it's it's turned into a negative versus a positive because we know there are beautiful things that happen um, in in that sphere, but it feels more negative lately. Mm. Yeah, and you're saying more specifically lately, or do you have a sense of what things have shifted mm-hmm. that allow that to feel more negative? I think politically, and you know. Um, in in my circles of of talk and people it's it's more racial and you you know there i see and read things that from people that i know that i'm like gosh i've known you for 20 years and you've never told me that face to face but on social media right, boy right. i mean you just let it all out Oof. and so then when i say hey let's meet for coffee it's no nah, i'm good <laughs> you know so it right. it does take down what you said this veil um, and barrier and, and, and again, just makes them feel bolder. And, but it, but it's also like, well, then who are you without that? You know, I want mm-hmm. you to be bold to speak truth and honesty to me. I would do the same, but why do it on social media? That feels like a stranger to me. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And how do we say, how do we say the things that are really going on for us internally, the things we're working through our ideologies that we're aligning ourselves with, but in a way that allows us to still be in community with people who are different than us. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a lost skill here that as we become much better at, at identifying who we are like, we might need to at some point, or that's perhaps like a kind of, um, too casual way of saying it, that I think that there is an importance in us developing the skill in being able to say, how how do I be in relationship with people that I am unlike? And how do I still espouse the values that represent who I want to be in this world and move and walk with integrity in my relationships, even if we're different, even if we see things differently. Mm -hmm. And it seems that social media doesn't give us a lot of space to rehearse those skills because we're mm -hmm. using, you know, a hundred and so many characters on Twitter, or we've got this little post or people are kind of all caps blasting each other in the comment section of a post. And, and we can't sit down and look each other in the eye and go, tell me what's happening for you. Like, what did this stir up for you? And those would be the kind of questions as a psychologist that I think about when I see behavior like that online, I see people's reactivity. And I think there's a story behind that. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a story behind that. But social media is not the place that we work those things out right. either because we don't have right. the safety and the continuity and relationship to actually create a relational container, which would allow us to unpack those things and change them and build relationship and do it differently. And so the tension here is that we're kind of working out our traumas, our childhood patterns, our family of origin issues, our intergenerational narratives but not necessarily naming them as such. And we don't have the space to actually heal mm. through through the inter kind of the disconnected nature of those of those spaces. So what I would love to be able to do if every time I saw a really harsh comment on social media, I'd love to say, tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about how you how you came to believe that. I'd love to know what's important about that ideology for you? Or what are you hoping will happen when you behave this way? But that's not my job. People are not inviting me into that space. They're probably not also interested in were. examining. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah it's, um, there's so much lost opportunity for self-exploration and exploration in our social patterns because we're working this stuff out socially, but there isn't the safety socially to actually... Um, dig into it and heal and repair the wounds that are creating the wounds that we're perpetuating. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that concerns me about social media is that nuance isn't rewarded, right? The algorithms um, tend to elevate things that are more extreme in order to get more eyeballs, in order to keep people on the sites longer. And so do you think that there's a way that we can start to use social media in ways that benefit humanity and, um, friendship and really elevate the conversation instead of bringing it down to these extremes. Sure. So you mentioned the algorithms and there are forces behind social media and the way that it works that most of us don't really have control over. And I certainly don't understand as a psychologist, the, the kind of outside my domain of expertise. But what I can say is that if we can become conscious of the way that we use social media, we get to pay attention to what accounts we follow, what content we engage with, and the impact that it has on us and our quality of life. 
So we know, for example, kind of simple research studies that show if you look at certain kinds of images and you take a measure of a, you know, a body image self-reflection inventory, you're taking an assessment that tells you how do you feel about your body after looking at those images, that there are certain images that will make you feel worse about your body. And then there are certain images that if you take the same inventory, you'll feel better about your body or you'll feel more com compassionately connected to your body. So what we get to do as people who are socially responsible or kind of um, autonomous or using agency and consciousness in our social media behavior is to ask ourselves, which accounts have what kind of impact on me? And do I become more of the person that I want to be in the world when I'm engaging in this content day after day? Or do I become different? Do I notice at the end of the day, I'm feeling more anxious or I'm more critical of myself or more critical of other people? That takes slowing down and tuning in, which is really hard to do if we're using social media to numb out. Mm. But to be media literate and to be conscious of our, our what our bodily messages are telling us about how we feel about the content that we're engaging in could allow us intentionally just to start uh, culling accounts and being more supportive and more engaging in places where we notice that the impact on us is overall health. If we find spaces and communities and accounts and kind of dialogues and threads and you know groups online that have an impact on our ability to be in the real world in a healthier way mm -hmm. and that we feel more connected to ourselves, I would say, let's try to intentionally spend more time there and, and pour our resources and energy into building up and supporting the communities and the groups and the people and the accounts that we want to see more from because we know that our world gets better and bigger and more just when, when they're thriving. I like that, that connection between this. These are not separate places that we dwell. These are extensions of all the different spaces that we live. We're present in all these spaces. I love that. And using social media in a way that um, makes our, where we're stepping in the world even more vibrant and alive and that's and creative. It's so good. So I'm I'm curious about the woman, the mom. Maybe I might be talking about myself. It's hard to say for sure. Who like maybe has things to say on social media, but feels this fear or or like wants to participate in a dialogue that they feel like would be healthy and generative and is an extension of their true selves. And yet they feel like it's not worth it. I'm going to get blasted. It's going to be um, received as divisive. Um, so I'm just, I'm not going to do that, you know? And I know that's everyone's individual decision, but talk us through what it looks like to be brave and when it's not worth it, <laughs> when it's like, yeah, just right. walk away. Right, yeah. Well, I think that there are so many ways to use our voices on social media, including uh, what we like, uh, what we promote, what we share, what we save. I mean, I've learned lots of things like that about the algorithms that, you know, that we can endorse things without actually saying what our opinion is uh, by where we spend our time, what accounts we follow, et cetera. I, you know, I feel really conflicted about giving some kind of boilerplate advice or commentary on this because I think that there are some people who actually uh, probably don't have the internal, what we might call ego stability to deal with the fallout of saying the thing that they actually believe. Mm -hmm. And it would be really damaging to their mental health to be, um, air quotes, kind of courageous in that way. And they don't have the resources to manage the distress that it would create for them. And so they're not ready in the same way that we, like we wouldn't say go 
go run a marathon without training. Um, we're going to say, don't, don't engage in a kind of discourse online that if it stirs stuff up for you, you don't have the capacity to be compassionate with yourself with or know the truth about who you are. So if people say really harsh, untrue, negative things about you who don't know you, uh, that you can't or filter those out and know what is really true about you. That mm-hmm. being said, I think that there are so many times when we get really scared of what people will think about us. And it's an opportunity for us to reflect on just how much stock we put in the stranger's opinion of ourselves and the ability to separate out, okay, whose opinion of me really matters? And what do those people say about me? And will those people say what's true about me? And I can post online and say something really important, especially like I'm thinking about issues related to justice and the ability to speak up or speak out against issues that are really problematic. we're going to get some pushback and knowing who we go to, to answer the question, who am I really? And what is my worth? And mm. right, all of those things, being able to know that that should not come from the anonymous strangers on social media who are responding mm. to us mm-hmm. is a helpful way to protect <laughs> ourselves against that. Um, that being said, uh, I don't know if that's maybe even kind of like, again, too, too passive a way of saying it. People tend not to change their minds because of what someone said on social media. It's just a psychological fact that we are not actually engaging in social media for the most part to open our minds to new perspectives. For the most part, people are engaging in content so that they can affirm the things that they already believe to Mm -hmm. be true. So we are spending a ton of energy trying to change people's minds with a hundred and so many characters And the truth is, it's not actually going to help anybody change their mind. It's going to cause them to double down into their perspective. There is such thing as critical mass. That's where we have to kind of, it gets a little funky that when there are enough people who are saying something that it could, you know, in one direction, it could have an impact on that person's worldview or whatnot. But the truth is, and it will always be this way just because of how our nervous systems develop in-person relationship with over time where there is connection and communication that understands consequences and empathy will be one of the only ways that people change. So if we are trying to be a hero and we are trying to say something to you know, make a person see it differently, that's a futile effort. And what would actually be better is if we were having dinner with our neighbor who sees things differently than us mm-hmm. and we let our kids play with their kids and we talked about the hard things over years and that's that's how people change their mind about things. So knowing the research evidence might allow us to save our energy to say, I'm not going to spend my my Tuesday night you know, pouring all of this energy into finding the right thing to say, knowing at the end of the day, it's not going to do anything different for somebody else. Right. Yeah. And I, okay. I think it's interesting how my five-year-old daughter, I have no desire to ever let her see social media ever. Like that's <laughs> kind of where I'm at and how I feel about it. Yet I'm more than okay to pull up the app. And I feel like that's just a really weird space to sit in as a parent. Um, if, if I'm not willing to let my kid do it, then why am I doing it kind of thing? And what, what am I showing them? Is there a healthy way to, because I, I know my sister 
um, she had a battle with her daughter because I think like the age limit for Instagram is 13 years. Like you have to be 13. And she was like, but all my friends already have it. It's okay. And she had to like barter with her child to, you know, cause she wanted an Instagram account so much. Is there actually a healthy way to bring our children into social media because it's not going away. It will, it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. Is there a healthy way to even do that with our kids? Yeah. Now this might sound kind of controversial what I'm about to say, but let's think of it as a a comparable paradigm. How do we introduce kids to alcohol? Right? When you look at alcohol, I'm not going to give my child, I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm having a baby soon. I'm not giving my child alcohol, (laughs) certainly not for a very long time. And then if they're having alcohol, we're having really thoughtful conversations about how much and when, what is the purpose and what does it do for you? And how do you engage in it responsibly? And what are the damaging impacts on it for you? When you look at places like Europe, right? Alcohol is around and it's normalized. And so parents are saying like, oh, it's okay to have a sip of wine with dinner because it's okay. And we, we, we see drinking behavior and the kind of binge drinking behavior that typically shows up in America doesn't really exist in Europe with right. Europeans in the same way. Right. So whenever we're looking at something, again, that's kind of a controversial perhaps co- comparison, but whenever we're looking at a something that we could be using as, that could be detrimental to us, we want to think about what is the, the age of development? What are the consequences of engaging in this? What are the benefits of engaging in this? But most importantly, how do we teach a kid to use a something? And I actually think about social media as a substance in a way, the same way we think about other substances we use and abuse. How do we teach them to use a substance appropriately? And my temptation as well, because I have a lot of fear about raising a child in a social media generation, just understanding the negative impacts that it has on neurodevelopment. My temptation is to say no phone ever, (laughs) kind of like you, Matt, like no social media. And yet... The reality is like that doesn't engage in a kind of critical thinking, which supports a child to make their own choices to know, oh, I have a, I have a compass inside that tells me, oof, I was on the phone too much today. And here are the impacts of that. Or this is, I felt really crummy about myself after seeing those accounts. And so I know how to disengage from following accounts like that. So I think it's, there's probably some mix of how do I use it? And am I using it too much? And am I modeling something that's healthy that I'd want for them? But then also, what is their stage of development? What are they capable of? Can they think critically about things? Can they engage in some behavior and have some impulse control around it? Do they know when something is too much for them and know how to get out of it? And what could they do instead? And have I seen them be responsible with other kinds of you know, numbing strategies or, or other behaviors where even if other people are doing it, if it doesn't feel good for them, they know how to get out of that situation. Mm. And if they don't know how to do that, what skills do I need to give them to support them to be able to, to get out of an uncomfortable situation or a situation where they're doing something that ends up hurting them or somebody else? So I'm less thinking about social media and more, what are the foundational interpersonal and intrapersonal skills that someone would need to be able to regulate impulses, to regulate emotion, and to be in tune with themselves enough that they could make smart choices and then compassionately respond to themselves if they make a mistake in some way. Mm. Uh, Hillary, this has been so enlightening. So good. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Mm. I have a sheet of notes that I've taken. <laughs> oh, wow. So good. Thank you so much. Hillary, will you tell everyone where they can find you? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, here we are. Social media. Yeah. I was going to say, like, if you want to find me in my embodied self and not through a screen, I live and work in Vancouver, BC. (laughs) That's where my, my body is located. Um, but in terms of my online presence on Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride and on Twitter, Hillary L McBride, my website, Hillary L McBride.com. And what I will say is that I am on social media, but I in no way feel married to it. And I'm not on there all the time, every day. And so I try to really engage in a socially responsible, but a personally responsible way with it. And I'd love to connect with you there, but you're not going to get a DM back from me because that's just one of my boundaries. Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Practice what you so, preach. That's exactly, awesome. exactly. So you can find me there. And then I've got a couple books out and one coming out in October as Yay. well. And uh, so can you can we find get that my book work now? in the written form. Can we get The Wisdom of Your Body now? Yeah. So actually, as of today, it is available for pre-order. And if you head to my website, hillarylmcbride.com, you'll find a bunch of retailers, including local ones and small business owners and whatnot that you can find uh, in your area to purchase the book. Because I know we have different purchasing preferences around supporting businesses and uh, some choices feel better than others for certain people about how to get content. But pre-order online and head to my website, hillarylmcbride to find out where you can get that book. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Hillary. As I mentioned at the top of the show, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we want to close out today's episode with some resources for you if you're struggling in the area of mental health. You can get more info on Dr. Hillary McBride in the show notes. We also want to make sure you know about a group resource we offer called Fierce Love, which is a six-week group that meets virtually and provides support in the area of mental health. And you can get more info on joining a group at mops.org. As always, thanks for listening. Hey friends, thank you for joining us for Moms Unscripted, a production of Mops International. A quick reminder that opinions discussed are solely the opinions of the individuals and do not necessarily represent the organization. For more information on today's episode, please visit mops.org backslash Moms Unscripted podcast for show notes. And join us again next week for another unscripted conversation around the Mops table.